The Lever. Subscriber-supported journalism that holds power accountable. As a Lever Premium subscriber, you'll get to hear exclusive bonus content from this episode and others in your feed. To become a subscriber, go to levernews.com. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Lever Time, the flagship podcast from The Lever, an investigative news outlet. I'm your host, David Sirota. On this week's show, I'm going to be talking to Congressman Ro Khanna about, well, really everything in Congress. We started out uh, talking about his investigation into the fossil fuel industry. He's been leading a really important investigation that has surfaced thousands of documents about the disinformation campaigns being run uh, by fossil fuel companies, a disinformation campaign aimed at distracting our attention from the climate crisis. Uh, Roe and I also talked about those recent votes for the Speaker of the House, uh, banning or the potentially banning, I guess, gas stoves, or at least the rumor that gas stoves are going to be banned. Uh, I don't think they're going to be banned. And we also talked about the recent troubles with the airlines. Uh, he has really been a critic of the airlines pushing Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg to regulate or better regulate the airlines. Uh, it was a great conversation. Uh, stay tuned for that. This week, also, our paid subscribers are going to get a bonus segment, our interview with author John Hendrickson about his new book, which is called Life on Delay making peace with a stutter. John writes very candidly about living with speech disfluency and the impact it's had on his life. Uh, the Lever's Joel Warner spoke with John about his book and what led him to write it. If you want access to Lever Time Premium, head on over to levernews.com to become a supporting subscriber. That gives you access to all of our premium content and you'll be directly supporting the investigative journalism that we do here at The Lever. Speaking of which, uh, if you're looking for other ways to support our work, share our reporting with your friends and family. Leave this podcast a rating and review on your podcast player. Like it if you're watching it on YouTube. The only way that independent media grows is by word of mouth, and we need all the help we can get to combat the inane bullshit that is corporate media. As always, I am here with producer Frank. What's up, Frank? Not much, David. Uh, had a pretty good weekend, holiday weekend. Um, attended an alumni event for my the college that I went to, uh, which I think are always something where people get those invites and they're like, I don't want to fucking go to this thing. And then you go to it and you're like, oh, that was actually really nice. It was really Did everyone nice turn into uh, turn out to be the superstars that they thought they were going to be uh, when they graduated college? <laughs> uh, no, not at all. Uh, yeah. We actually have a very, very low success rate as it turns out. Uh, <laughs> but it, no, it was good to see some professors, some uh, some former classmates and, you know, it's it's always good to to actually go do those things that you're kind of dreading, but you know it's it's good to see people. It's good to reconnect. I think that's really important for us as as humans in this world to just for sure know. for sure. I used to dread going to my high school reunion, and now whenever I get the chance to go back to Philadelphia and do and do that, I, I, I do. I really I really enjoy it. It is good to reconnect with people, and um, most of us, including me, have not achieved the uh, all the hopes and dreams that we. Uh, perhaps uh, hoped and dreamed to achieve uh, now that we're in uh, midlife. And I actually think it, that recognition of that uh, ends up chilling out a lot of people. So that's that that's kind of fun. Um, I've been paying attention in the news before we get to our interview with Ro Khanna. 
you paid attention to the uh, to the World Economic Forum in, in Davos? Did you, did you see all the headlines about that? I was reading a few of the headlines, but I did not delve deep because those stories always depress the shit out of me. So, but what 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 did you find out? Well, I, I I always find it interesting to see the headlines. We've had on Peter Goodman of the New York Times, who wrote the book Davos Man. Uh, when I worked for Peter Goodman, when he was my editor at International Business Times, he assigned me to cover Davos. So I always watch the coverage of the World Economic Forum, uh, uh, having now covered it twice. And for those who don't know what the World Economic Forum is, uh, all the richest and most powerful people in the world uh, and lots of heads of state and politicians, they gather in this Swiss mountain town in a kind of cartoonish display of wealth. But it's all much of the messages, many of the messages that come out of it uh, are designed to say that uh, the rich and powerful can get ever richer and more powerful, and that will actually serve all of humanity. It's kind of a, a self-congratulatory message that comes out of that. In truth, it's actually just like a deal-making venue. All the private equity guys and the hedge fund guys all get together and they're making deals all week. Now, when I covered it, I did something – Kudos to Peter Goodman for telling me how to do this. Uh, I was like, what am I going to do with this at this confab of like the richest and most powerful people in the world? What am I doing there? And he said, listen, just sit in the lobby and all these people are going to walk by because they think it's a safe space. And for the most part, it is a safe space, but you don't have to make it a safe space for them in the sense you can just shove your microphone in, in their face and ask them a question. Uh, and so I did that all week. And we got all these amazing stories. I remember we got this one story. Um, I don't think she'd ever been asked about this. I asked the the CEO of GM, Mary Barra, uh, why they market cars without safety equipment like airbags, why they market those cars without those things standard uh, in the developing world. Uh, and she said something like, oh, we, we believe in consumer choice. And the story oh, sure. went like super viral across the world. Uh, I, I I asked uh, Steve Schwartzman, the head of Blackstone, the billionaire head of Blackstone. Uh, I asked him a few questions and he uh, he didn't like me very much because I covered him a lot. Uh, and then I wrote a story about how he expressed incredible surprise. Uh, this is a, a few years ago. This is uh, still during the aftermath of the financial crisis. He expressed all this surprise about why people, why American voters were so angry. Uh, at their current politics. This is like the richest guy in the world whose private equity firm is just like, you know, sort of fleecing everything everywhere. Uh, and he expressed like legitimate surprise that people were so angry. So I always watch the coverage of the World Economic Forum to see if anyone else, any of the other news outlets that, that are there, uh, use the tactic that I use, like, hey, this is a venue to actually ask uncomfortable questions to very powerful people. And unfortunately, at least the coverage I've seen, you don't get much of that. Although I did see one one thing. I, I Did you catch that story on CNBC where Senator Chris Coons, uh, Kristen Sinema, and, um, and Joe Manchin held a uh, private closed-door meeting with, I think it was 50 CEOs? No, I, I did not. I did not catch this. And again, like I said, depresses the shit out of me. Yes, yes, it is depressing. And as I said on social media, I said, you know, here, here, if you want to know what the democracy crisis is, it's Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema blocking or you know filibustering voting rights legislation to expand the vote, and then flying off to Davos to have a closed door confab with uh, corporate CEOs behind uh, a security fence, uh, walling away uh, any protesters, any dissenters, uh, and and in, in terms of the conference itself, walling away even any, any journalists. So 
to me, there's a lot of talk in the in the country about the January 6th and the democracy crisis. And January 6th was a serious thing that did deserve to be investigated. But the, if you really want to know what the regular normalized democracy crisis is, it's that. That's what that is. I, I think this is also so important because, you know, there's a, a large swath of, you know, people in the country who have started to buy into, you know, very like wild conspiracy theories about, you know, like the Illuminati and the and like this secret class of people who are pulling the strings. And then we, we have no idea. It's like, no, this there's it's not a conspiracy. It's just it's happening right in front of your eyes. This is where they this is where it happens. This is where they meet. And it's not necessarily like a shadowy cabal. It's just like a bunch of different people with their own individual private interests all making these deals simultaneously. Although let me let me let me correct you a little bit. I would say it is a conspiracy. It's not a theory. Right. There's conspiracy theories. There is actually a basic conspiracy of the rich to make themselves richer. And it's not a theory like it's it's not some, you know, oh, I have an idea like like this is a, a, a like a theory or a myth. Like It's right there. It's it's Davos. That's what that is. And and the the other conspiracy is to sell the uh, act of uh, fleecing the entire world as an act of altruism. That is what the World Economic Forum, in my view, really sells. Speaking of greed and fleecing the entire world, that's a good segue to our upcoming interview with Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna, who spearheaded a major investigation into the fossil fuel industry. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with that interview. Welcome back to Lever Time. As I said, for our main interview today, I'm going to be talking to Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna from California. Since September of 2021, Ro has been leading an investigation with the House Oversight Committee into the disinformation campaigns being run by the fossil fuel industry. Uh, this past December, he and Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney of New York, uh, they published a letter of findings accusing the fossil fuel industry of greenwashing its public image and misrepresenting its alleged decarbonization efforts. Thousands of documents were surfaced uh, from this investigation, and they are all really important. I spoke with Roe about this probe, and we also talked about the general state of Congress. Uh, we talked about the recent issues with the U.S. airline industry as well. He has been a big uh, critic of the airline industry, pushing uh, the federal government to better regulate that industry. Uh, and we also talked about uh, the debate around the alleged, I underscore alleged, banning of uh, gas stoves. And we talked about the recent votes for Speaker of the House. And I asked him why progressive House members have yet to wield the same power uh, as right-wing Republicans vis-a-vis -vis their own leadership in the Democratic Party. It was a really, really good conversation. And regardless of your opinion, I just want to say I give Roe a lot of credit for being one of the very few progressive politicians who regularly engages with independent and progressive media. It's very important. I wish more elected officials would do this. Uh, that being said, uh, here is my conversation with Congressman Roe Khanna. Hey, Roe, how you doing? Good. I'm uh, excited to be on. First time I'm on after your Oscar nomination. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I appreciate the, you haven't forgotten us. <laughs> well, uh, we appreciate you being on. And I want to start in a thing. And that's a good segue, actually, because our movie was about the climate crisis. I want to start with uh, the investigation that you've been spearheading. Uh, it's gotten some attention. I think it deserves a lot more attention. You've been spearheading this investigation into the fossil fuel industry. It began its investigation in 2021. First question, top line question, 
Why did you decide to start this investigation? What exactly uh, is it about? Or, or, well, I guess it's now a Republican Congress. So what exactly was it about? What was the specific focus? And I think the really important question is, what do you think we have learned from what you've uncovered? So the uh, investigation really was precipitated by uh, Exxon's lobbyists, one of them bragging uh, on television that uh, they basically kill climate legislation while at the same time touting climate goals. And the hypocrisy was just galling. And then when we looked into it, you realize this wasn't just an isolated incident. This has been the pattern of these companies for 40 years. And no one has really held them accountable. Now, regardless of what you think of climate change, and obviously uh, the science is, uh, is, is apparent, every American should be appalled by companies lying to them. And that's really what this is about. And what we discovered is that these companies had the most sophisticated science. They knew climate change existed, but in the 70s, 80s, 90s, they denied it. And the current CEOs uh, are unwilling to express any regret for those past misstatements. Why does it matter? Because if we had started the transition in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, it would have been much less painful uh, than doing it now. And the second thing we discovered is they're engaged still in misdirection and uh, deception. They're claiming these broad climate goals, uh, but then they don't put any money there. Uh, they're actually not reducing emissions in the uh, to the level they claim. So I'm talking to you uh, about a, a day after this big study came out, and this is a report from The Guardian on this study. The oil giant Exxon privately, quote, predicted global warming correctly and skillfully, unquote, only to then spend decades publicly rubbishing such science in order to protect its core business. I like the word rubbishing. That's The Guardian. Uh, it's a very, very <laughs> British. British, way, British way of putting it. Uh, the trove of internal documents and research papers uh, had previously established that Exxon knew of the dangers of global warming from at least the 70s. The new study, and this is really important, has made clear that Exxon scientists were uncannily accurate in their projections from the 70s onwards, predicting uh, with precision the upward curve of global temperatures and CO2 emissions. So this adds a new wrinkle here in the sense that it's not only that Exxon kind of generally knew about the link between carbon emissions and climate change. It was very, very specific in its predictions and it got its predictions right. I think the question then becomes, if all of this comes out and we know that Exxon and the fossil fuel companies knew in a very granular and precise way what they were doing to the planet, then what do you think the upshot of that should be in terms of policy? Does that mean that they need to pay uh, for future cleanup of the disaster that they've cr created? What does it mean for Congress going forward? Yes, I think they need to be held accountable the way big tobacco was held accountable. And David, one of the things our committee discovered is it wasn't just the scientists at Exxon that knew. The executives knew about this. They were in the loop. And as late as the early 2000s, you had Exxon CEO going on television and saying or giving print interviews and saying, uh, I don't believe human activity causes climate change. So basically lying. And you have today's CEO unwilling to condemn past CEOs uh, lies. 
And so there has to be a, uh, a reckoning and accountability. There has to be uh, action that's taken where uh, big oil is responsible uh, for uh, the cleanup and for uh, helping uh, transition uh, in, in our climate goals. When you rightly, in my view, say that they were lying, one argument could be that they're not really necessarily under any, I guess, corporate obligation to tell the truth, that they're not under any um, you know, business directive to run out there and admit that their products are creating an existential crisis for the survival of humanity. Now, I think morally they're obligated. Is there any argument that you expect to come from the oil industry that says, yeah, you know, maybe we had it right, maybe we had it a little wrong here, uh, but you can't hold us legally accountable for simply defending uh, the use of our products? That's the tact I thought they would take in the hearings, but they aren't even willing to concede that. I mean, they aren't even willing to say, oh, we got it wrong, we made some statements we regret. It's a culture of total, uh, let's get in the foxhole and fight and not admit uh, any mistake. Now, you know, there's separate issues legally in lawsuits because there is uh, a, a you're not allowed to mislead consumers. You're not allowed to mislead your investors. Uh, and the courts will figure out, you know, whether they cross uh, the legal line. But certainly Congress can say uh, that they inflicted harm on the country and the world and that we're going to hold them responsible in creating a fund uh, to do maybe it's cleanup and uh, closing of uh, oil wells so that we don't have methane leaks and that they need to be part uh, of that effort. And that is something Congress uh, has the power to do. Now, you, uh, towards the end of this investigation in December, before the Republicans took over Congress, um, you uh, and your co-chair, Carolyn Maloney, a congresswoman, uh, accused the industry also of greenwashing. So there's denial, there's deception. And then there's also this separate and related idea of greenwashing. You wrote that the documents demonstrate how the fossil fuel industry greenwashed its public image with promises and actions that oil and gas executives knew would not meaningfully reduce emissions. I think the question here is how do you define greenwashing? And if the industry is simultaneously uh, denying uh, what it knew – but is also uh, sort of pretending to be part of the solution to the problem. It's kind of trying to have it both ways, not, not really necessarily admitting how big the problem is, but also trying to pretend it's a solution or part of the solution to the problem. Isn't there a contradiction there? There is. And that was the uh, hypocrisy. I mean, we found documents where these big oil companies are saying, well, let's just engage in the rhetoric of being green, because if we do that, uh, it will give us, quote, a license to operate and expand our fossil fuel infrastructure. Now, let me give you a clear example of how they were doing that. They would say things like, we're going to reduce scope one and scope two emissions. Uh, and people are like, okay, no one knows the difference of scope one, scope two, scope three. But when you parse it, here's what they're saying. We'll reduce the emissions in the actual production of oil at our facilities but we're not going to reduce any of the emission of the use of oil, which is like 95% of it. So they put up TV ads saying, we're gonna reduce the emissions uh, and people think, oh, they're reducing emissions. And then cynically, they're saying, this is gonna actually give us a license to expand the uh, drilling of oil. They'll talk about investment in algae or investment in clean tech, and it'll be a couple percent of the actual budget. 
and people then they cynically will actually put more resources in expanding enhanced oil recovery. And they'll say they are for the Paris Accords, but not taking any action, but at the same time expanding production uh, in, in total contradiction to the Paris Accords. The sad thing is it's worked to some extent. I mean, they are now seen by some of the investors and in public as, uh, oh, they're getting religion and they're on the, on the good side. And I would have no problem if it was a true conversion, but they're not actually uh, participating in what needs to be done. So that raises then the question, not only what does need to be done, but how is it possible that the fossil fuel industry could be part of the solution? Now, to my mind, knowing what I know about climate change, and I'm not a scientist, that there's, I guess there's an argument that the fossil fuel industry can ramp down uh, its production and we can ramp down our use of fossil fuels in a, uh, in, a, in a kind of controlled way as opposed to just flipping a switch and shutting it off. That's one argument, which kind of uh, makes some sense. And to follow the directives of the uh, international science agencies, which say no new fossil fuel development, that all makes sense. But I feel like the, uh, the fossil fuel industry is trying to insinuate that it is a long-term part of the solution. In other words, a short-term part of the solution is we're going to ramp down what we produce. A long-term part of the uh, – saying they're a long-term part of the solution is saying they're going to permanently be around. And I guess I would ask you, is there a future – do you envision a future in which we are doing what needs to be done scientifically in the physical world about climate change? Is there a future of that where there is a fossil fuel industry or not? Well, I think the question for these fossil fuel industry – I mean, obviously, we're going to need fossil fuels for – uh, the, the near future in terms of uh, as we develop renewables and as we develop energy efficiency and as we develop uh, fusion and, and geothermal. But the question is, are they going to tr truly diversify or not? And they have not uh, shown that interest. And look, there are two models. You could be the CEO and say, we've got to run right now with fossil fuels, both in terms of domestic demand and global demand. And we can make a ton of money. And we don't know how long we're going to be able to make this ton of money. It's 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Who knows? Whether you look at the global demand. But we should just make every possible dollar and give lip service to the renewables. Let some other folks figure that out. Or you could be a CEO saying, no, we've got a 50-year vision, 100-year vision, and we want to start to diversify. And we know that's not going to be profit maximizing in the short term, uh, but we want to do that. And... So far, the CEOs have chosen the first, profit maximization. So I've seen no uh, real appetite for them to diversify. Uh, it's possible that that could be the case. They have a few activist investors who've gotten on the board, but it would take a total shift of the culture of these companies. I want to turn very quickly to a related issue. Um, in the news of late is this argument about gas stoves. Uh, an argument, a lot of science coming out. Let's first say that a lot of science coming out, by the way, not just new, but corroborating past science about the human health dangers of, let's say, uh, burning natural gas in an open flame in your home, a push for electric stoves. It's both a climate issue in terms of carbon emissions and also a human health issue. 
Now, there's also the human health issue related to the fossil fuel industry with air pollution. We know that uh, studies have come out recently and, and confirming what we've known, that air pollution from burning fossil fuels uh, actually is responsible for lots of, of deaths. Uh, again, the stove issue is about child asthma, as an example. There have been more studies about if you live close to uh, fracking and oil and gas development, uh, there are evidence that it may increase uh, birth defects. My question to you is, do you think the human health factor in all of this could be a political game changer? And I'll give you my argument that for some people might think, hey, listen, you know, climate change is this distant, far off thing that's going to happen. And I know we probably shouldn't burn as much fossil fuels as we're burning. But, that, you know, the climate crisis is far away, which, of course, it's not. But I'm just giving you the, you know, what I think some people think. Hey, my gas stove may be poisoning me. Hey, burning fossil fuel may be giving my family uh, asthma because of the air pollution we're living under. Hey, living near the oil and gas site uh, may uh, potentially give me all sorts of diseases that I really don't want. Question for you is, do you think the human health aspects about burning fossil fuels could be a political game changer for the climate argument that if we have to reduce our use of fossil fuels, we there's this other argument that's related. It's not about climate. It's about this is burning. This stuff is actually physically bad for the population. So I hear you. I'm, I'm not for banning gas stoves. I mean, my, my parents have a gas stove and, uh, you know, gas is still cheaper than electricity for many Americans. But I do think we have to speak much more clearly about the health risks and the health issues uh, that uh, that burning gas uh, has. And, and most people don't know of all of those issues. And I think it's our job to, one, first raise the awareness, educate, have appropriate regulation to the extent we can mitigate the health risks. But ultimately, I think we have to make it attractive for people to, to transition to, to, to electric in a way that we can bring the price down, either through subsidies of electric uh, or convince people to, to make that transition. But I don't think uh, you know, you're, you'll be forcing a lot of folks in my own family or other things uh, if you if you ban it. And I think that would be a, a huge rebellion of working class and middle class uh, families. But I agree with you on the broader point of, of how to be clear, I, the conversation about banning gas stoves. I mean, I don't imagine it as you know, the government kicking down your door, coming into your home and forcing you to rip out your gas stove. I think what we're talking is prospectively. For instance, new construction of, of homes or new construction of buildings, of apartment buildings and the like, that should manufacturers be making uh, the same new gas stoves? I guess just as a follow, I would ask you, as an example, some cities have considered banning uh, gas in new construction. Separating out the, you know, this idea, this cartoonish idea that the government's going to come in and rip out your gas. I mean, I don't think anybody's talking about that. I guess I would ask you as a follow, prospectively, uh, in terms of what we're making now for the future, do you think um, policies that limit or restrict the, the building of new fossil fuel infrastructure, including things uh, like uh, gas infrastructure in homes and in buildings, do you think that's part of the solution? Well, I think the first thing is what we did with the Inflation Reduction Act, which is to massively invest in renewables and invest in building out uh, the, the, the renewable economy. So the, the ideal would be that if you're someone building a new home, you're going to choose uh, to have the electric stove because it just makes more economic sense. That has to be coupled with 
some regulation and fees on things like methane emissions and uh, and 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 uh, we need to make sure we're certainly not permitting uh, new uh, fossil fuel infrastructure that's running running roughshod over uh, over vulnerable communities. And I, that's why I opposed the quote unquote permitting reform that would have given a license to really build uh, new fossil fuel infrastructure. But I think what we have to do is be be, be be careful in how we talk about these issues, because I think one of the things we've improved in talking about these issues is we view this as actually improving people's economic lives, creating jobs, and not uh, got the government coming in and with a, with a heavy hand and, and hurting the working class, which led to the yellow vest movement and other things. And so I thought the IRA structure, uh, which was focused on building the renewables uh, was important. Of course, there's going to be a need for regulation and penalties at the right in, in certain case by case basis. Let's change gears now for a second. I, I want to turn to all of the drama that's happened in, in Congress, specifically in the House. This recent set of votes uh, on Kevin McCarthy becoming Speaker of the House, a lot of brinksmanship from the right, the far right. I mean, the Republican Party is the right, but the, the far right. Uh, to try to pressure uh, the House Speaker or the House Speaker-elect, I guess, at that point, or designee, uh, Kevin McCarthy, for concessions. That was shown on TV. I, I mean, there was a lot of laughing about it, I think, on the, from liberals. I actually saw it as the small-D democratic process at work. Democracy involves arguing, involves negotiating, involves concessions. I mean, I, I don't agree with the concessions that Kevin McCarthy gave, and the results of it are not, <laughs> not what I want to see ideologically, but I think that is democracy at work. The question has come up, why haven't we seen progressives in the House in the past do the same kind of brinksmanship with the Democratic leadership that we have seen the conservative members of the, or the arch conservative members of the Republican uh, conference use against their leadership. In other words, wh why hasn't there – there's a perception that the progressive wing of the party has not played hardball with the Democratic leadership. Do you agree with that assessment that it hasn't? And if if it hasn't, why hasn't it? Well, it hasn't played hardball to the extent that some activists want, but I think we did uh, get a lot of our uh, concessions in in the last two years. I mean, we uh, got the child tax credit. We couldn't get it permanent. We got in the American Rescue Plan a lot of the priorities on education and, uh, and, and, and funding. We uh, got a lot of the climate provisions. So I guess the point is that the leadership made a lot more concessions to progressives in terms of some of the concessions they made to conservatives was like, we're going to put people on the rules committee. We're going to put people on these committees. We're going to have you give, have you have a seat at the table. A lot of that, the progressives won last two years, not because of the House Democrats, but because of Bernie Sanders's campaign, because of uh, Elizabeth Warren's campaign. And uh, people just realized we need progressives matter. And then so now we're arguing about well, should we have gotten more? And uh, of course, that's a, a debate uh, that's that's worth having of where do you find the balance of did we push enough? Did we get enough? Could we have gotten more? And that's, you know, the, the, the thing with the Medicare for all that I, you know, I'm for it. I'm for Bernie's version. I guess, you know, having a vote on it, it, it just exposes maybe people who are not for it. But the vote would just be the people who are not co-sponsoring it. So, it, you know, I, I guess my, our focus has been how can we actually move legislation uh, as opposed to just having symbolic votes. So I understand people's 
wanting to do that. So just so I hear you correctly, because I, I know there are some there are some activists who are very focused on this issue. Is is it safe to characterize what you're saying as the Republicans with the Kevin McCarthy situation had their their kind of concessions and negotiation process out in the open, right on the floor of the House in the context of the speaker's race? And and what I hear you saying is, is that there have been those negotiations. There have been that back and forth. There has been that pressure uh, more internally, not necessarily on the floor of the House, uh, and that you feel that that the, the progressive wing of which you are part of has actually extracted concessions, maybe not in as spectacular and as public a way, but that you – is it your argument that you have – extracted those concessions just in a kind of different way, a less performative way? Yes. Now, I, I will in candor admit that the concessions may not be as much as the Freedom Caucus get. Partly, I think this is a, a challenge for progressives as a, a shyness or a hesitation or a humility about power, right? So you're not going to have progressive members temperamentally say, I want to be chair of this subcommittee or make me the put me on this, uh, the, the chair of this committee. And you have House Freedom Caucus members making some of those demands. We would say put progressives on committees. And so partly I think it has to be, okay, we have to be more strategic a little bit about power and not as, uh, as modest uh, about it. But in terms of actual concessions, uh, there were quite a few. I mean, uh, the American Rescue Plan was significantly written by the House Progressive Caucus. The number was much, much higher than it, it ever was under Obama with the financial crisis. The, uh, the, the Build Back Better was significantly written with the Progressive Caucus. I was in meetings with the president where we were discussing progressive priorities. I was in meetings with the speaker who we were discussing. It wasn't lip service. So, you know, I, I think we can argue how much concession was made to progressives. But the terms before, there were almost zero concessions. So we've certainly made progress. And to be clear, I, I have said this before. I'll say it again. I, I, I think it was a failure to not have a minimum wage hike passed, whether part of the American Rescue Plan or not. I agree with that. I think we should have fired the parliamentarian. Right. Fire the parliamentarian. But I also believe, I just want to echo this. I've said this before. I'll say it again as well that the American Rescue Plan was probably the most progressive piece of legislation that has ever passed in my adult lifetime. I have, like, hands down, uh, I think, yes, it didn't include some things that I, that I would have liked to, to see in there, but compared to uh, the last 40 or 50 years in terms of cre the child tax credit and the unemployment benefits and the actual social safety net, it was a landmark piece of legislation. I just wish it had gone; it had been extended uh, further. It was it was yeah. cut off, and, and and I think I think we agree on that. I want to I want to turn uh, to to two more questions very quickly. Um, the airline mess, because this is something you've also uh, been uh, in the middle of. Um, you have been one of uh, one of the Democrats, and there have been a lot of them uh, who have been pushing Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg to use his regulatory authority as the sole regulator of the American airlines uh, system, uh, the American uh, aviation system. Uh, you have been pushing him to get much tougher on the airlines for months. Uh, there's been some political blowback for you for actually having the guts to go out there and try to put pressure where the pressure, in my view, deserves to be, to be put, which is on the regulator 
Talk to us a little bit about the argument that you have been making. And I'd just be curious, what do you make of the pushback uh, from inside of of your party? Uh, and, and I mean, from liberals and people upset that a Democrat would criticize uh, Pete Buttigieg. And I want to be clear, you're not the only one. But what do you make of that response? Well, the job of a member of Congress is speak, to speak for people. You know, the airlines have plenty of lobbyists. They know how to get uh, a hold of uh, the transportation secretary or any cabinet member, uh, but people don't have a voice. And so when people are suffering, when their flights have been canceled in, in mass over the holidays, it's the job of a member of Congress to voice that frustration. It wasn't artificial. I had the most calls in my office that week was over the airline issue. And that's why 20 other House Democrats wrote a letter to Secretary Buttigieg. And there are things that the secretary has done when he, when he does well. I'm Praised that we were working on an issue in my district on uh, a, a airport having to uh, not have lead flights. And we've worked with him and I've, I've said good things about him. But when there is an issue there that he has not instituted the fines that he needed to institute, I don't know why. I mean, it may be just he wants to strike a balance with the private sector and his role as a regulator philosophically. I mean, I'm not questioning his motives, but the point is he has been reluctant to institute steep fines uh, that could have changed behavior. Now, can I say that if he had put those fines, Southwest wouldn't have had an IT failure? No one can say that for sure, but I can tell you this, they would have been much more conscious of spending money on customer service, and that probably would have included technology than giving the money for uh, stock buybacks. And here's how I know that our side philosophically is right on this issue. Now, the secretary is saying, we need more st steeper fines. Uh, so, well, how, how, why does he now think that we need steeper fines? If steep fines aren't a deterrent, then why is he suddenly saying we need steeper fines? So I'm glad that he's acknowledging the shift. I hope he'll follow through with it. And I th hope he'll find American companies and not just a few foreign ones. Uh, I want to turn very quickly to final question about uh, the changing politics in uh, California. Uh, there is a presumption that Senator Dianne Feinstein is not going to run uh, for re-election, although maybe maybe she will. But uh, Congresswoman Katie Porter, the Democrat, has already announced that she will be running for the Senate in 2024. I think Congresswoman Barbara Lee has I – th I think I saw a story saying that she's considering it. I also saw a big Politico story saying that you may be considering it. I guess the question is, are you considering running for U.S. Senate from California in 2024? And if you are – what do you think that race looks like if uh, somebody like Katie Porter is in that race and uh, potentially Barbara Lee, Ro Con you know, you are Ro Khanna, you are a, a progressive member of the uh, of the House Democrats. So I've just named three progressives. Like, what do you make of running in a situation where there are other progressive candidates? Well, David, I've said I will be looking at it and I'm looking at it, but you actually articulate one of the main considerations. And that is if Barbara Lee gets in and, and is committed to running a serious race with a serious team, I don't want to be in a situation where we're splitting up uh, the progressive vote and having a non-progressive and Republican or something make the top two. And I have a, a, a tremendous amount of respect for uh, Barbara Lee's anti-war stance uh, on, on Afghanistan. I think one of the challenges of the 2020 election, which we both lived, is that the progressive vote kept getting split. And that's one of the reasons a progressive didn't emerge. And I don't want to replicate that uh, in the Senate race. So uh, that will be a 
heavy factor as I weigh uh, whether to, to to get in or not. Uh, I, I'm not going to be doing it in a way that's going to spoil or split the progressive vote. Ro Khanna is the Democratic congressman from California's 17th congressional district. Uh, he was also uh, the chair of the House Oversight uh, Environmental Subcommittee. You can find him on Twitter at Ro Khanna. Uh, I got to know Ro, by the way, as he was a co-chair uh, for the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign. That's where I... By the way, that's still the most popular thing I've done in my <laughs> sixth Congress. It's a, it's a... Yes, it's a, it's a credential that everyone will know you by and you, you've, you've always been uh, uh, proud of and not shied away from. Uh, and you played a really, really important role on that campaign. And um, I, I appreciated that generally and I appreciated getting to know you on the campaign and I appreciate you being willing to come on our show and talk to us uh, and be in touch with us. Uh, you're one of the, I should add, you're one of the few Democratic members of Congress who is willing to constantly engage with independent and progressive media on a regular basis. And I, know well, I appreciate it. I don't understand it. I'll, I'll bring this up with the Progressive Caucus because I, I, you know, I go and sometimes you, you get comments that are negative, but then I'll, I'll talk to people and so many people will say, you know, I just I respected you just for showing up even. And, and I don't get it because the right, uh, this is one place I do think we can learn from the Freedom Caucus, they're all over alternative media in getting their message out, independent media. And I think it's a big mistake for progressives not to be doing that. And I and I agree. And you're somebody who walks uh, that walk. And, and I appreciate it. And I, I, I appreciate you encouraging your colleagues to engage with independent and progressive media much more than they do. Ro, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, David. That's it for today's show. As a reminder, our paid subscribers who get Lever Time Premium, they get to hear our bonus segment, our interview with author John Hendrickson about his new book, Life on Delay, Making Peace with a Stutter. You can't compare Biden's lingering stutter with Trump's word salad. They are... <laughs> Apples and oranges. Listeners can subscribe to Lever Time Premium by heading over to levernews.com. When you subscribe, you also get access to all of the Lever's website, our weekly newsletters, and our live events. And that's all for the criminally low price of eight bucks a month or 70 bucks for the year. One last favor please be sure to like, subscribe, and write a review for Lever Time on your favorite podcast app. And make sure to head over to levernews.com and check out all of the incredible reporting our team has been doing. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Rock the boat.